Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Forgive me, I didn't look up the page number, but those of you that just uh, handed out the black one, first person to Acts chapter 4, would you please uh, shout out a page number? We're going to be at Acts chapter 4, where we took some time to do a marriage series and took some time to do Advent. Page 907 in the hardback, thank you. We've been doing the book of Acts this, this year, but we took a little time for those other things, and we're going to get back on the horse. Would you guys please uh, give our Bible reader, Luz, a foundation welcome? She's going to come read our text for us. Good morning. Okay. Peter and John before the council. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captains of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so that so the number of believers now told about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or by whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a, trip, for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's always weird preaching a sermon on a text where somebody is preaching a sermon. So you're sitting here thinking, well, I can't say it any better than that. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. This is a sermon in its own right. I've, I've definitely put down uh, the things that I think are the most important parts of the text that I'm going to share. Those of you who want to take notes, you can jot notes in, in your Bible. I didn't prepare anything fancy because most of what we are doing today, in addition to it being a sermon in its own right, is we're going to try to dust off cobwebs for those of us that were here for the journey of Acts 1 through 3 to remind ourselves of some of the big themes of the book that are going to go the entire 28 chapters. Um, and so, just because we haven't been doing it in a few months. So, 
Uh, let me give you a little recap in case you're new to church, um, new to the book of Acts. This is a book written by our brother Luke. He was a first century doctor. He was in the first generation of folks who heard that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He'd waited for his entire life. He becomes a Christian and he's a details guy. Anybody here hope your doctor is good at details? So you're glad Greg's not your doctor. There we go. All right. Praise the Lord. So Luke sees what's going on. They've been Christians for like really a generation, and he's realizing, man, you know, it would be a blessing, particularly for his friend Theophilus. People debate whether that's a symbol for a, a person or an actual person. But he wants to write down a careful account of Jesus' life. And so he goes and talks, we think, to Peter and to a bunch of others, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he writes down a two-volume book based on the testimonies of all these people. From that, we get the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, originally one book divided for reasons that don't matter today, but it's essentially two parts of one book. The first is what Jesus was doing while he was in the flesh. Here's what he said, did, taught his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And we know that, and I'm using that language on purpose, because Acts 1 starts off with saying, hey, in my first book, I told you all that Jesus began to do. Luke's perspective is that as he watches the Holy Spirit go into the church and proclaim the gospel, it is still Jesus working. Can Luke get an amen? amen. It is still Jesus working. If it depends on you or on me, we're in big trouble. I don't think the church would have made it 2,000 years if it was up to us, would it? We're too busy watching TV or whatever the heck we're doing. Uh, Jesus is seeking and saving the lost because he loves your family and friends, and he loves you far more than you love you. He is driven, he is focused, he will not be stopped. Right, in, in Isaiah 9, we hear, what's gonna make the kingdom explode to all nations? We hear Isaiah 9, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It is the zeal, it is the passion of God that drives light out into the darkness, that drives love out into the hatred and apathy. It's God's heart that does that. We are, most joyfully, along for the ride. So this book of Acts, we, the biggest, most exciting part, Jesus ascends into heaven and sends his Holy Spirit who, who fills his church and now gives us the power and the desire to do what pleases God, Philippians 2. And they go around telling everybody this really, really dangerous thing to do at the time. Hey, we found the Messiah. Very dangerous thing. To 21st century Western ears, we're going, okay, you found a guru that you want to follow. You want me to, what, buy his book, go to his seminar, follow him on YouTube? What are you really calling me to? It can't be that big of a deal, right? As soon as you don't like your guru, you can just unfollow, put the book in the trash. Like This is a very different culture than he's the one, which is blasphemy if you're wrong. Blasphemy like in a culture where you could get stoned to death for that. So much higher stakes than what you and I tend to think of, and, and we're seeing some of those stakes now. So the Spirit fills people, and they're speaking in unknown languages, praising God in all these languages they clearly don't know. Everyone can hear their Galilean accent, and they say so at this event we call Pentecost. And these Jews who had traveled from many nations to come for a festival goes, there's no way these Galileans know my home language, and yet I'm hearing them praise God. What is going on? And Peter says, I'm so glad you asked. 
he saw an opportunity to preach. And he preaches. And 3,000 people come to Christ, like happens normally on a Sunday. Is God in the driver's seat or is he in the driver's seat? That makes me feel good. And so the story after that, we hear a little bit, and when we preached on this, Acts 2.42, a little bit about what a healthy fellowship looks like, devoted to relationship and the the teachings of the apostles and to prayers and what the early community or an ideal Christian community looks like. And then we get into chapter 3, and it goes bonkers. Peter and John heal a guy who for over 40 years hasn't been able to walk, and what's the response? We need to arrest those guys. Huh? Is that our, is that our normal response when somebody does something nice? <laughs> what? So for those of you who like notes, here's the first thing I'm going to give you to write down. And this is true of all of us. Write it down in your heart if, if that's... If you're going to retain it, praise God, but this is important for all of us. When people are confronted with their sinfulness, they often confront the messenger. I said people, this is all of us. When people are confronted with their sinfulness, not somebody else is wrong, not somebody else did the wrong thing, has the wrong ideology, has the wrong religion. No, when I am confronted with my sinfulness, not my mistake, not my misstep, but an absolute evil cosmic treason against my creator. When somebody tells me that I did wrong things because I do wrong things because I love the darkness. Am I clear enough? When somebody tells me that I love the darkness, when Jesus, who just a few months before this, tells the religious elite, your father is the devil. He says that to the pastors. When someone confronts me with my sinfulness, what I'm most likely to do is to confront the messenger or shoot the messenger. If you're a Christian, I need you to breathe this in and breathe it out and embrace it and accept it and move on with your gospel proclaiming life. If you love Jesus, you're gonna get shot at. Since we live in a country that has freedom of religion, usually this gets to be a metaphor. Sometimes, some places in the world, not so much. But usually, I'm fighting a cold. Usually, it's a metaphor. He's going to be upset that I told him they're a sinner. I'm upset when someone tells me I'm a sinner, so why, why should somebody else be any different, right? The difference, the only difference, is that I, by the grace of God, I have the Holy Spirit inside me going, Greg, knock it off. Greg, that's pride. Greg, that's self-righteousness. Greg, stop. You know that rebuke was true. You know it, right? Don't we say stupid stuff? If our whole life was measured in the first three seconds of response, wouldn't we all go to jail? No, it's like the Holy Spirit doesn't show up until the fourth second. (laughs) Well, he's faster for you maybe, but for me, it's just a step behind. (laughs) Greg, knock it off. That was a rebuke. 
He's telling you you're sinful. That, that's, that's for your blessing. That's for your benefit. It's not um, an insult. It is not a personal insult to tell somebody that they have cancer. That's a diagnosis. Hey, you have a problem. I'm telling you about the problem because I'm your doctor. I care about you. And here's what we're going to do to address it so that you can live and thrive and be happy. It's going to be great. But when the Almighty, through his word, through our conscience, or through a Christian friend in our life, in any way tells me that I'm a sinner, that I have a sin problem, we know Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages. In our context, we'd think, okay, I have to sin consistently for 14 days, and then at the second Friday, then I receive a paycheck called death. And we might be overcomplicating it. It is the natural fruit. If sin is sown into a field, what's the fruit? What's the yield that comes out? Death. So I need to be told. But my tendency is to shoot the messenger. You confront me, I'll confront you. Christians, if you love your friends, you are not going to stop blessing them with opportunity to know their creator. You're not going to back off and play the coward just because there's going to be a little bit of heat. My basketball coach in seventh grade said over and over again, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. And what he meant was, if you're standing in the key, you will get knocked over. <laughs> it's going to happen. If you're close to the basket, someone's going to charge. So you keep your feet planted and you draw the charge. I'm sorry, I'm in basketball world now. But you draw that charge. You take one for the team. Why, why do we as Christians, I know why, but why, why do we as Christians in 21st century NorCal, why do we think that we get to have an evangelistic life that is free from conflict when no one's ever had that? No one's ever had that. Part of the reason why is that one of the biggest idols of our culture is comfort. I want to be comfortable. I want a conflict-free existence. So I want to encourage you, again, if you're jotting things down, here's, here's the next step that I want you to consider. If you love Jesus, this is for you. Prepare your heart. Do the heart work. Journal through it. Pray through it. Prepare your heart for the next confrontation so that you and your friend will receive a blessing. Prepare your heart. Confrontation will happen. There will be sideways glances. Maybe you get cussed out. Maybe it's you know, a little bigger than that. I don't know. But does your friend deserve a chance to know their creator? I mean, I, I said it wrong. We deserve to go to hell. Let me say it more theologically accurate. Did Jesus suffer a tremendous amount for this person to have a chance to know their creator? It's really what does God deserve? Does God deserve worship to be born in this person's heart? Of course Jesus deserves that. Second, for those of you who are taking notes, no one can arrest the gospel. No one can arrest the gospel. Look at verse 3. <laughs> Oh, no, let's go back to the, uh, let's just go from, from verse 1. Peter and John speaking to the people. They were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, some of the sedges. Can I just, gen general principles. If your church has armed soldiers that go and do the bidding of the pastor, 
Do you think that that could tempt the pastor toward bad behavior? Two guys show up at your car. You're, you think you're leaving church. You're in your minivan, you're, and all of a sudden there are two guys with guns. You know, oh, it's the deacons. It's, it's, the, it's the ushers and their Uzis. You roll down the window. Yes, sir? You're like, um, the giving bucket wasn't filled all the way to the top, so you're going to have to... Uh, right? So the, the temple, they had their own military. And so they're able to arrest people who teach the stuff they don't like. Whew! What could possibly go wrong? These leaders were very disturbed. Where have we heard that word before? We, we just finished up Advent. Where have we heard the word disturbed? I, I preach it every December. Herod and the entire city of Jerusalem disturbed when the Magi say there's going to be a newborn king of the Jews. Do you want me to switch or you think I'm good? I'll switch? Okay. In the middle of verse 2, they were disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people uh, that through Jesus there was resurrection of the dead. We're getting down to the theological weeds here. The Pharisees were fine with resurrection. The Sadducees were not. That was something that they fought over. But this particular group, the uh, Sanhedrin is dominated by Sadducees, tons of these folks. So the biggest religious group in Israel is not okay, specifically with him saying there's resurrection and there's resurrection in the name of this particular guy who we are claiming is Messiah. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message, what happened? Believed it. I love how in the dynamic equivalent, verse 4 starts with the word but. But means that we are about to introduce an idea that is contradictory to the one before it. They arrested the two messengers, but the gospel got out. That's what those verses say. In our world, we love to think, in tech, all, all, tons of information, very little wisdom. <laughs> we talk about censorship because it is so human for us to want to control one another, isn't it? If you just gave, each one of us, if you gave us a little too much power, if you gave us some armed guards and some money and some authority, we're all two steps away from becoming tyrants. The gospel, the good news that Jesus is the savior of the world, that by putting your faith in his death on the cross, your sins are washed away. Instead of putting your faith in anything else to make you right with God, that message was saving people. Well, this is inconvenient because I locked up the messengers. I did what I was supposed to do. Dagnabbit. Well, now what am I supposed to do? 5,000 people believe it? Brand new converts, this has gotten out of hand. Because you can't arrest the gospel. Hey guys, Romans 1.16, Paul says that I am not ashamed of my friends who are really well-trained missionaries because they're great people. No? Does Paul start off Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of this tract that we put together because it's really well thought out? 
He's not ashamed of the message itself. Why? I'm glad he's glad you asked because he says, for it, the message itself, is the power of God at work, saving the Jew first, then the Gentile. The message saves people, not the messenger. I love you, Christian. I love you. We got to get over ourselves. We have got to get over ourselves. Whether we are overly confident or we are underconfident, we're still making it about us when it is the message that saves people. I can be locked up and put in a prison. You can be locked up. We could be killed. And the message cannot be. I don't know how much you know about world history the last 2,000 years. There have been plenty of people at different times that very much tried to kill the church. But the problem is the church keeps going every time somebody believes the gospel. The church is growing and growing. You cannot stop the Holy Spirit of the living God from seeking and saving the lost. And in fact, later in this text, two sermons from now, we're going to get to a guy who says, hey, just leave them alone and it'll fall apart if it's not of God. If it's of God, you might find yourself fighting God. Wise advice. Um, I want to draw your attention to, I'll tell the story because I don't, pretend that everybody has seen it, but um, eight or nine years ago, a really great uh, Superman movie was made called Man of Steel, and the first 20, 25 minutes are very emotional, um, even if you're, if you, if you don't, don't have kids, you can feel the emotion, but when you do have kids, it gets dialed to 11. Who we call Superman... Kal-El, has just been born on a planet that they know is dying. Everybody on that planet knows the planet is dying. A few of us are going to be able to escape, but most of us, it's, it's over. And Superman's dad, he has the resources to get him on this little rocket and, and sets a computer trajectory and sends him to this faraway planet that we know as the viewers of the story we know of as Earth. And it is surreal watching this scene as a planet breaks apart, disassembles, lava flowing this way. It's like it's one, you know, atomic bomb after atomic bomb. The planet is imploding. As a man and a woman, they're not freaking out. They're not running. They're not hiding. There's nowhere to run. calmly watch their son blast off and go to safety where he's going to save billions of people. They don't know that, but they, uh, their calmness has a lot to do with what they value. They didn't think the point was to save their life, so there's no fear, there's no anxiety, what they wanted most was for their baby boy to be okay. And they know that they put him in this thing and they close the lid and they press this button and they get what they want. And I can't help but thinking, Christians, we are bad at evangelism because we don't realize that we're already terminal. 
Like, I'm already dead. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. All of my desires and my dreams apart from the kingdom of God, those all look silly now. Jesus saved me. I have a new destiny. I have a new trajectory. And there's this unstoppable force inside a module called the gospel. I'm going to tell people that Jesus has loved them even to the point of death. And even if somebody did something to me, they cannot stop the gospel going out. It's an unstoppable force. We win. Here's, let me say it another way. Christian, you don't have to avoid suffering to win. You don't have to keep physically living to win. You don't have to get rich to win. You don't have to be successful to win. The church, one person at a time, watching the flesh slowly succumb to sin and our bodies physically die, we all just sit here watching the gospel go out and saving people, and we just exult in it. It's not about me. It's just a privilege to be a part. Third, if you're jotting things down, someone has to love me enough to tell me that Jesus' blood is on my hands. Someone has to love me enough to tell me that Jesus' blood is on my hands. Look at verse 10. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. The man who wrote some good books and a lot of people find popular and they like listening to him on podcast. Did I get it right? You're laughing at me again. Guys, I'm just saying, if you're trying to win the crowd over, did you have to bring that up again? The man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. He says to a group of pastors, not only are you murderers, but you are opposed to God. The sentence structure is undeniable. Whom you killed, but whom God raised from the dead. You are not on God's side, pastor. You're not on God's side, theologian. You're not on God's side, famous Christian author. Because all your teachings don't really matter. All the people who follow you don't really matter. If Messiah comes and you kill him, nothing else mattered. If your life was really submissive to God, then you would have been like Simeon and Levi prophesying over and celebrating and exulting when the baby comes. You would have been like the Magi, giving gifts of worship and adoration. You would have been like the shepherds, but you didn't. You're not on God's side, they say to the religious leaders with the authority to take their lives. Again, they have soldiers. Remember this? How much boldness does it take when someone has soldiers around you, they're in control of those soldiers, and you basically strike at the very core of their identity. The core of their identity is, I'm a good person. And you sit there and go, you're not just a bad person. You're so evil, you just killed the Messiah. You did it on purpose. Someone's got to love me enough to tell me that Jesus' blood is on my hands. I cannot repent until somebody tells me I am guilty and that God lovingly and patiently calls me to turn from my rebellion and invites me to. 
How terrible news would it be to say, hey, hey, you know what? Jesus' blood is on your hands. You're a murderer. The end. There's no hope. That, that's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel says, hey, you're a murderer, just like all of us. All humanity has blood on our hands. And guess what? In the paradox of the cosmos, our God willingly chose that death to forgive the murderer. Someone's got to love me enough to tell me that. If you um, don't have the joy of watching the movie Frozen over and over and over and over and over again, sometimes you just wish your kids would let it go. Let it go. Can't hold me back anymore. But they want to watch said Disney movie again. And the one highlight, even when the rest of it is well memorized and in your noggin, the one highlight, the pure genius of Josh Gad, who came up with the idea, hey, maybe we should have a snowman who dreams of summer. Wouldn't that be a hilarious premise? And what if he sings an entire song about how great summer is going to be? And he just he fantasizes about all things hot. And what, He sings this song that the first time I heard it, my side hurt. I was weeping. I was crying so hard because the premise was just ludicrous. Love this song. Love this character. Olaf is amazing. And at the end of his song... There are two characters there that just witnessed the whole song, and they have opposite reactions to his delusion. The guy who's there says, somebody's got to tell him. And the girl says, don't you dare. And you see a clash of two worldviews in those two comments. Don't you dare is the spirit of the age. It doesn't matter how delusional somebody is. Let them stay in their delusion. They're happy. See, if happiness is more important than truth, I don't need to break you out of what you've been deceived by. The only problem is that when a snowman finally gets what he wants, he gets summer, he'll die because the wages of sin is death. See, getting what you want will kill you. That's what God has been trying to tell us for thousands of years. If your desires are ultimate, then you're dead already because getting what you want will kill you. But the guy who spoke and says, somebody's got to tell him. That's the voice of truth. That's the voice of justice. If you recognize God and God has made image bearers around you and they're just, uh, it's, it's, it would be sinful to not tell everybody that they are deeply loved and that there's a path toward life. How could you allow somebody to go on in their deception? You, you've got to love me enough to tell me that Jesus' blood is on my hands. You, you have to. I don't, I don't know that I hate God. I, I think that I am thinking about it. I'm thinking that I have ideas. Atheism, agnosticism, vague therapeutic deism, I think I'm Hindu-ish, I think I'm Muslim, I think this, I think that. 
none of those beliefs start with, hey, do you know you're at war with God? This is where Christianity almost starts. I say almost because there are two beautiful chapters at the beginning where we're not at war with God. God made you, he exists, he loves you, he's benevolent in what he gives, and chapter three, war. Do you know that God exists? Do you know he's benevolent and loves you? Do you know you're at war with him and you started it? Somebody's got to tell him. Because a snowman who believes summer is the best thing ever, he's, he's singing and dancing his way toward death. Someone's got to tell him. And then uh, we're going to end on this verse 12. Read verse 12 with me one more time. There is salvation in no one else. God has, and he repeats himself in case we thought he stuttered. God has given no other name, meaning the authority, the weight, uh, blood that would be effective in washing away your sin, under heaven, which just means in the entire world, by which we must be saved, not could be potentially kind of, sort of, maybe, must be saved. We are condemned by our sin. We need to be saved from the consequences of our own sin, and there's only one path forward. His context, his immediate context, are Jews that absolutely believe in a Messiah, but they were hung up on the idea that Messiah was going to deliver us from Caesar, and God has been saying all along, no, 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 you need to be delivered from the serpent, his work, and his effects. Their book said a creepy snake came and started this whole thing. It didn't say Julius Caesar showed up and started this thing. And yet we somehow got it twisted. From Genesis 3 all the way to Matthew, we got it twisted. The villain in the book is so clear, and we were just convinced, because we watched too much Fox News, we decided the political leaders were the problem instead of Satan being the problem. The book is so clear. Dragon at the beginning, dragon at the end, dragon in the middle, and we're, we keep thinking, I need to fight my neighbor. I need to fight my friend. The problem is ideology. No, the problem is sin. Cosmic treason against the Most High is the problem. It manifests in a bunch of ways, and there is a need for salvation, and there is only one who is offering forgiveness of sins. His broader, their broader religious context was the Greco-Roman world that had lots of gods, but all of which, I don't know, yet another Percy Jackson film is coming out. Dear Lord, save us all. Every 10 years, they just reboot this thing. Somebody else has a 10-year-old boy who hasn't seen this. Ugh. Okay. All of the Greek gods and goddesses rehashed ad nauseum. If you notice, they are all just about as strong or slightly weaker than somebody like, I don't know, Hercules or Paris. But the gods in the Greco-Roman world... They're all like lowercase g. They're more like what we would think of as superheroes like Thor or Iron Man. They're not a singular creator of the world. 
And if you told a Greco-Roman person, hey, there's a God who can deliver you from the anger of Zeus, they would not believe you. They know that Zeus will get what Zeus wants. Their problem is that Zeus was a selfish, hateful, vengeful God, capricious. If Zeus wanted you toast, you'd be toast. And so the gospel message comes to them just a little bit different. We would say to them, hey, Zeus is real. There is an all-powerful God. He is angry at sin, but he is not the way you've been taught. He is also the very definition of love, and he'll send his own son to die for you. It's not what you've been taught. The same all-powerful God is both love and justice at the same time. To our modern polytheistic world. Sounds so offensive to make an exclusive truth claim. Jesus is the only one offering to wash away sin. And if we would slow down, I know we we get upset, we lose our minds, got offended, somebody disagreed with us. If we would slow down and carefully read the books that tell us, you know, four-hour work week, here's how you're going to get wealthy and you're going to be happy. Self-help toward the direction of wealth doesn't actually hold up under the microscope if I'm willing to believe that there is a spiritual realm. Anybody read? Let's just let's just go real basic. Who here has read a really decent personal finance book that you were blessed by? Anybody read a decent personal finance book? Oh, that's what our tithing issue is. We need to get more of you reading those. Um, it can be true, and it can be beautiful, and it can be helpful, but a personal finance author is not even remotely trying to wash away sin. They're not even trying. Does that make sense? And yet, you'll see language like transformation, a new life, a new year, a new you. This overstated claim of what it's going to accomplish, you're going to lose weight. You're going to be a new person. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're ignoring sin. What if sin is actually my problem? There are so many things to chase, so many things to give primacy in our mind and be devoted to and memorize the book, let alone read it, that are completely dodging what God says the problem is. I mean, do you walk up to people with terminal disease and you, you try to sell them Spider-Man Band-Aids? 10 cents a piece. There's just 10 cents. You, my friend, I give you a good price. 10 cents for a Spider-Man Band-Aid. And they're sitting there with a chronic disease and they're going, um, no, I'm, I'm good. Thanks. Our culture are dying from internal things. and They've got Band-Aids all over them because it's so perverse and so broken that we hand out hope in these little doses and people grab them quickly. That's what an illicit drug is, by the way. It's a tiny little lie. It's a piece of hope that the pain, I won't feel it anymore. I'll be happy if only for a moment. Meth, heroin, Starbucks. What? What? Right? One's illegal, one's not, whatever. (laughs) If you love Jesus, your friends are covered in Band-Aids. Your family are covered in Band-Aids. They've been sold a bill of goods over and over again about what's going to give life, vitality, happiness, purpose, meaning. And the risen Christ stands there alone saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. No one promises that. 
No one actually provide a soul-level rest? I'm not at war with God anymore? No one even pretends to offer that. There's no point in even trying. You know you can't deliver. So I'll sell you a Band-Aid for 10 cents. And I got my 10 cents, and you got to feel good for two seconds, and we move on. What I'm trying to tell the Christians in the room is, you have a better offer. You have a better offer to to share with your friend. You have a better offer to share with your family because you have a better Savior, the only one, the only Savior who exists in the cosmos. You know him. You know him. You can arrange an introduction at any time. You know him. Some of you who are exploring faith, you need to know him. There's no better life than knowing and being known by your creator who loves you. There isn't a better life. There isn't a better option somewhere else. As our brother Pascal hundreds of years ago said, what on earth am I losing if I live my whole life as if Jesus is the savior of the world and I ended up being wrong? I didn't lose anything. I lived a great life. But I just think there's too much evidence inside the church for 2,000 years of a living spirit promoting light and love relentlessly. I just see too much evidence that Jesus did actually walk out of his own grave. And that's what the whole book of Acts is about. That's what we're going to be doing going forward. Bloodied cross, empty tomb, spirit-filled people, a proclaiming bold people. That's where we're going. That's what we're doing. Let's thank God together for his word. Jesus, we confess on repeat that we don't have the capacity on our own to receive, Father, your words into our hearts, to be transformed in our own power. We cannot do that. It is your spirit that makes us hungry. It is your spirit that gives us a desire to obey. So Jesus, would we, you help us please right now take our thinking and lay it down in front of the text. Whatever the text just showed us that's wrong in the way we view you or view ourselves or view the world or view our enemy, God, would we repent right now of our thinking? God, whatever is in our passions that was called out by the text, would we take our hearts right now and lay them down? And God, especially our actions, our words, God, we confess layers and layers of social cowardice. We keep thinking that missionaries in other contexts, that they have it easy somehow, telling everybody around them about Jesus. But here, it's, it's harder here. Lord, our enemy has us duped. God, make us a bold people. Because every person in this room who loves you, somebody at some point loved us enough to tell us. God, make our love grow stronger than our fears so that love will dominate every word spoken and every action. We ask this in the name of our risen, conquering Savior, Jesus. God's people said, 
Amen, amen, amen. Go love and serve your family. Love and serve your neighborhood. Love and serve your coworkers and your city. I love you guys.